Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. We'll finish up the chapter of chapter 6 of Ephesians, and we'll finish up the whole book today. Our context is this. Paul has just finished going through three hierarchical relationships that the Ephesian church would be involved in, namely the relationship of husband to wife, of parents to children, and masters to slave. And he has talked all about submission for the those in the inferior rank and for those in the superior rank to treat those of the inferior rank with kindness, gentleness, love, patience, and so forth. So we now take up a new topic in this section, verses 10 through 24. It's the arm of the Lord, the full arm of the Lord, that familiar passage of the scripture that is preached on all the time because it's, it's fairly basically easy to understand and it's a lot of exhortation. So we start with verse 10 and go through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord, Paul says, and in the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now this is an encouragement by Paul to the Ephesians to be strong in the strength of God's might, to take the strength of the Lord and apply it to yourselves. So this is basically getting God's strength working in our lives. And he says in verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces, demons. So that means that we have to have spiritual weapons to fight spiritual enemies. That's the basic overview of what he's talking about. Now in verse 12, he says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Then what he means is not merely against flesh and blood. Of course, Christians have to fight humans who oppose them. Paul the Apostle did that all the time, and we will too. But the point is, is that there are demons behind those people, and that's ultimately who we're fighting against. That's really who we're fighting against. It doesn't mean we're not fighting at all against human beings. Our struggle is against... And flesh and blood stands for human beings, but our struggle is against rulers and powers, world forces of this darkness. What are the powers? Well, that's demons. Let's look at some other scriptures where Paul uses those expressions, that expression, rulers and powers. Ephesians 1.21, Christ is far above all rule and authority and power. There's rule and power, and he adds authority and dominion. Christ is far above all that. Now, some people think that's angels, but a lot of people think it's demons, so... It's definitely demons here in Ephesians 6, verse 12. Our struggle is against rulers and powers. We're obviously not struggling against angels. So that the phrase there is obviously demons. And that might make you think that Paul was also talking about demons in Ephesians 1.21, although people disagree on that. Ephesians 3.10, Paul uses the phrase again, ruler, rules, rulers and authorities. Ephesians 3.10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And again, some people think that's angels. Some people think it's demons. But at any rate, here it's talking about demons. World forces of this darkness is the New American Standard Bible translation. World forces of this darkness. The NIV has the powers of this dark world, which I think is a little easier to understand. The powers of this dark world. Satan is called the god of this world. John 12:31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world. So Satan is called the ruler of this world. Now... We hear that a lot, but here's what we know here. That in John 12:31, what's the end of that verse? The ruler of this world will be cast out. This is Jesus talking before his crucifixion. He's referring to his future crucifixion, and that's when the ruler of this world will be cast out. Of course, I guess you could say it could be cast out at the end of the world, but I don't believe so. Jesus was talking about how he defeated the devil at the cross and so forth. Remember, he saw the Satan fall like 
lightning from the heavens, he was probably predicting his the fall of Jesus. Well, he was talking about all the demons being cast out by the disciples. And so at some point, the de- devil was had fallen from heaven, and Jesus says he will be cast out. It's probably at the cross. So that means the battle that Paul talks about here in Ephesians 6 is one that he expects Christians to win as we are wrapped in the up in the strength of God's strength. And remember, when the scripture says that the devil is the ruler of this world, we're not of this world. We're of the church, the kingdom. So the devil does not rule us. He runs from us. He is afraid of us. And Christians need to get that in their heads that we need to be on the offensive against the devil and not cower down, quivering, shaking, trembling with fear at the thought of the devil. We don't need to be afraid of the devil. We shouldn't be afraid of the devil. Now these powers and world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness, the demons, are said to be in the heavenly places. Whoops, now we got a problem. Christians are also said to be in the heavenly places. Now we got demons in the heavenly places. How can demons be in the heavenly places? Let's show where Christians are in heavenly places. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ. So we're in Christ, in the heavenly places, and the demons are in heavenly places. Explain that one to me. Well, John Gill has the answer. The demons are in the second heaven. Well, actually, that's the first heaven. I don't know why I said the second heaven. That's the first heaven. Remember, the ancient Greeks had the first heaven was the atmosphere. The second heaven is outer space, and the third heaven is where God is. So if demons are in heavenly places, that means they're in the first heaven, the air. Remember in Ephesians 2, 2, Paul says, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. Think about it. Demons ain't going to be living in heaven. There's some of them in hell, I guess. And and obviously there are demons on the earth going around causing havoc and evil, and Jesus was casting them out. Well, if you cast a demon out, where's he going to go? He's not going to go to heaven. He's going to go into the air. That's where they, that's where they go. And then as they head, try to find another body to to inhabit. So Satan is said to be the rule of the power of the air. So that's how in the heavenly places it means in the air. That's that's how that's the world forces of this darkness. That's where they are in in the air in the heavenly places. They're not in heaven where Christians are and where God is. We now move to Ephesians 6.13 where Paul says this, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. What's the there, therefore? What's the therefore, therefore? Paul is just repeating his exhortation in verse 11 where he says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. So that you can stand against the schemes of the devil, therefore take up the full armor of God. So the reason we take up the full armor of God is to stand up against the schemes of the devil. And of course the devil is scheming to do us in. We ought not to be cocky about that. We need to be confident but not cocky. We need to be on the alert. As Paul will say later, we need to put on the full armor of God. We are going to have to have a battle, but we're going to win the battle. So take up the full armor of God. He repeats. So that you will be able to resist in the evil day. What's the evil day? The day that Satan specially devises a plan to come against you. Now that's true. You're not in a constant battle of evil. Sometimes the devil will plan something special for you. And so that's the evil day. That's when bad times come. And the devil's geared up for battle. And that's when you need to be geared up for battle also. Having done everything. In other words, having done everything to put on the full armor of God. You stand firm. Stand That means you're not going to go down. The metaphor of standing appears to be addressed to individual Christians, not to an army resisting a massive invasion of the enemy. As the NIV study Bible says, you could take it that way. You know, you Ephesians 
take up as a church the full armor of God so you can fight as a church. But I think here he's talking about individuals. And that standing firm, that's a military term, as Adam Clark says, hold your formation. Stay in formation. Don't buckle in your knees. Don't run. But stay where you are even though things don't look good. Obey your commanding officer, Jesus. We go to verses 14 and 15. Paul says in verse 14, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now he says, stand firm in verse 14. The last two verses of verse 13 were, stand firm. He repeats it again in verse 14, stand firm. The very last words of verse 13 are the very first words of verse 14, stand firm. So you see, Paul expects us not to go down from the evil day when the devil attacks us. He expects that. Having girded your loins with truth, this is messianic language from Isaiah, Isaiah 11:5. Also, righteousness will be belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. So Isaiah talks about righteousness and faithfulness being wrapped around your midsection. Paul says truth, which is a little bit different, but it's the same idea. Jesus is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life, as the Apostle John says. So we wrap ourselves up in Jesus. That's how we prepare to fight the battle against the devil in the evil day. Having girded your loins with truth, character, not brute force, wins the battle, as the NIV Study Bible says. It's not force. It's character. It's truth. The truth will out, as they used to say, even though sometimes it doesn't look like it. But truth will win. Truth has a couple different meanings. Truth, as opposed to false, is the common meaning. But truth also can mean real, as opposed to uh, imaginary. So we have a girded loins with the true Jesus, the 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 reality of the spirit of what's the reality of what's true in the spiritual realm, the reality of what is in the spiritual realm. Jesus, gird our loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. That comes from Isaiah fifty nine seventeen, which I will read now. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. A breastplate, of course, guards your heart against damage and and war. It guards you from getting killed, in other words. what is And righteousness is the breastplate. Righteousness is declared righteousness, legal righteousness. Before God, you are no longer guilty of sin. You're no longer God's enemy, but you're, you're a friend and are accepted in the beloved. That's legal righteousness. There's also practical righteousness as you walk in a sanctified, holy life. I don't know what Paul's referring to here. I'm sure he's referring to both. I mentioned that Paul, when he mentioned birthplate, was referring to Isaiah 59:17. He also uses the metaphor in 1 Thessalonians 5:8. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. Different breastplate. Thessalonians is faith and love. Ephesians is righteousness. We go now to verse 15, which I've just read. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This is also a quote from Isaiah. Isaiah 52, 7, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness. Who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. That, of course, would be a prophet or an evangelist or somebody talking about the kingdom of God. The NIV Study Bible says this verse reflects the custom of running barefooted. You run barefooted, but when you're getting ready to fight a battle, you put on the protective footgear like a Roman soldier would do. Now, this phrase is a little bit strange. Shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. How do you put on preparation? What does that mean? Well, I poked around in the commentaries and found the Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges says that equipment will be a fair rendering for that word preparation. The ESV has readiness. 
So it would be this, having shod your feet with the equipment of the gospel of peace. In other words, whatever it takes to get the gospel out there, get it done. Paul is speaking a little poetically here. But just get ready to go out and preach the gospel. Tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6, verses 16 through 17. Paul continues, In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, how can a shield extinguish a flaming arrow in the physical world? Large Roman shields were covered in leather, and you could soak those shields in water, and then if a flame-tipped arrow struck the soldier's shield, the water would extinguish the arrow. And so this is a good metaphor here. You believe the shield of faith, and you believe and trust the devil is not going to be able to hit you with a flaming arrow. He's just not going to be able to get you. It says extinguish all the flaming arrows. That means each and every one there. That means all without exception. The devil cannot beat you as long as you believe in Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that's easy. I know life in this world is very, very hard. I mean, after all, I'm sitting right here in the middle of a pan, a global pandemic that's about put the world on its backside. Yeah, I know it's not easy to believe in God sometimes, but hey. Scripture says all of the flaming arrows of the evil one will be extinguished. We have to believe in him. Verse 17 says, and take the helmet of salvation. Helmet of salvation comes from these same verses I've quoted before. Isaiah 59:17. he put on righteousness as body armor and a helmet of salvation on his head. First Thessalonians 5, 8. But since we belong to the, day, let, uh, to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. Helmet of salvation, what does a helmet do? It protects your brains. It does save you. It saves your life. It saves your mind. That's what the gospel does. It saves your life, protects your brain, protects your mind. The helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, So the Word is the sword which the Spirit uses. Now, we use that expression a lot, the, the sword of the Spirit. But let's think about this a little more. Sometimes that phrase can get a little bit too familiar, and we gloss over it in our minds. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. That means the Spirit needs a sword to use. The Holy Spirit uses a sword, and that sword is the Word of God. The Word is the sword which the Spirit uses. Now, this shows that we need to avoid two common errors. If we have all sword and no Spirit to wield that sword, then you end up with dry, dead doctrinal orthodoxy. The sword lies on the ground, doesn't do a doggone bit of good for anybody. You have to have the Holy Spirit wielding that sword. On the other hand, if you have the Holy Spirit working as hard as he can, but he doesn't have the word as a sword to pierce people's hearts, well, then you end up with mysticism and charismania and a bunch of nonsense. What's that old phrase? Not enough spirit, you dry up. Too much spirit, you blow up. And just the right amount of spirit and word, you grow up. Ephesians 6.18, Paul continues, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Now notice that Paul connects prayer with the word. At the very end of verse 17, he says, The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Verse 18, with all prayer and petitions, pray. So you got the word, you got the spirit, and now you got the prayer all hooked together. That's a good thing to do is pray the word. I've heard people say, you know, you read the scriptures and you pray what's in the scriptures. All, the more scripture you can incorporate into a prayer, the more powerful that prayer is, the more satisfying to you the prayer is. So use the word with the prayer. And also the Holy Spirit, pray at all times on the Holy Spirit in, in union with the Spirit. Now, 
I know that Paul talks about praying in the Spirit. He's talking about praying in tongues. I don't know if that's what he means here, whether he's talking about praying in tongues or praying in one's natural language. But at either way, you're praying in the will of God, praying with the Holy Spirit. You're not praying for a Cadillac or a jet airplane or a Rolls Royce or a Rolex watch. I know there's nothing inherently wrong with those things, but you know what I mean. How that's been abused here in the States, or been abused everywhere. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Holy Spirit, according to the will of God, in other words. And with this in view, be on the alert. Be on the alert means you can't go on autopilot. you got to constantly watch because the devil can attack. That evil day from Satan can come any time when you're not looking and not expecting. you got to be ready every day. Just so get used to it every day. You don't, I don't mean be paranoid. Be, it says be on the alert. It doesn't say be paranoid. It just says be on the alert. Realize that the devil can attack at any time. That's okay. You take care of him. You stand firm in the spirit. You clothe yourself with the strength of God. Stand firm in the strength of his might. And you beat him. We don't need to be afraid of him. But on the other hand, we need to be alert. Perseverance means you've got to endure. It, it's not automatic. You say, oh, I want to pray. I want to pray against the devil. Three-minute prayer and you go about your business. I, it doesn't work that way, friends. Oh, so-and-so's got a problem. I'm going to pray for Susie Q. Two minutes. One minute. Thirty seconds. Didn't just let it go. No. you got to keep praying. At all times, Paul says. Prayer and petition, which I think is just two ways of saying prayer. All times. For all the saints. I mean, I, a lot of my prayer time, it, I would say most of it is praying for people I know. Because there's a, there's a bucket load of trouble in this world. And everybody's got troubles. And in order to have an abundant, victorious life, we need people praying for us as well as for other people. In a minute, we're going to see, in the very next verse, Paul's going to say, pray on my behalf. Well, this is what I constantly do. Pray for me. I got this particular problem. I try to get as many people as I can praying for me, just routinely, without even second thought. I do that. I don't believe in going into battle with nobody praying for me, when, especially when things are difficult. When Paul says to pray at all times in the Spirit, in the Greek, it's in every season, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out, in every season, pray in the Spirit. It doesn't mean praying 24 hours a day. Of course not. Nobody can do that, but it means in every season. John Gill says, for example, you can have public prayer. You can have family prayer. You can have private prayer. You can pray at work. You can pray when you're walking around somewhere. You can pray a silent prayer if the occasion demands it, or you can pray vocal prayers. Just pray. Pray at all times, every chance you get. Ephesians 6, 19-20, Paul continues, and pray on my behalf. He says, pray for the saints, for all the saints. And then he particularly mentions, how about pray for me? Now, this is interesting because Paul is a great apostle. He needed somebody to pray for him. This shows how humble he was. Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. To make known with boldness, I thought Paul was automatically bold. He was the most bold person I ever saw. He's constantly getting arrested, having stones thrown at him. But he needed, I'm sure he was tempted to keep his mouth shut sometimes when he needed to preach the gospel. And so he needed boldness. And he asked for prayer that he would do it. Make known with boldness what? The mystery of the gospel, as I've said many times in Ephesians, because it comes up so often in Ephesians. Mystery is something that was hidden in God, not known to the world, but it's revealed. It used to be a word used of mystery religions, which were esoteric rituals and doctrines and beliefs and practices which were hidden from the public and constantly hidden and never revealed. You can go through the New Testament and pair up mystery and reveal, mystery and revelation, mystery and light, and show that Paul is using the term and, and the New Testament writers are using the term in a completely different sense than the mystery religions did. So when it's, we say the mystery of the gospel, we tend to think, oh, there's something mysterious. No, it's mystery that's been revealed. We know what that mystery is because it's been revealed to us. The gospel, we know what the good news is. 
as John Gill summarizes it, we know the Trinity, the two natures of Christ, justification, union with Christ, resurrection of the dead. Those things are now revealed to us. Mystery, I'm going from memory now, but mystery is explicitly tied to the incarnation, the crucifixion, the summing up of all things in Christ, the joining of the Jews and the Gentiles in one body in the church. Those are four examples I can think right off the top of my head that mystery refers to. So it's a broad term, refers to all the good stuff that God has now revealed to Christians through Revelation that the philosophers never even thought about. So Paul is asking for prayer so that he can be bold to preach the mystery of the gospel. And verse 20 says, for which, for which gospel, I am an ambassador in chains. Now, if you think about it, that's an interesting phrase because most ambassadors that you see, they're never in chains. They're treated with great honor. But not Paul. He's on the house arrest in Paul in in, uh, in Rome. Now, so it's a paradox to say an ambassador in chains, and that makes it it's striking. By the way, the chains there translated in the English is plural, and the Greek is singular. For I'm an ambassador in a chain. Now we don't talk that way, so that's why they translate it in chains. But it's singular, and this, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown say, leads some to think that Paul was under house arrest. If he were in chains, plural, the hands and feet would be bound together. But no, he's under house arrest, and according to the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges, this is the situation, quote, Prisoners detained upon appeal to the emperor, as was St. Paul, were sometimes coupled by a slight chain around the right wrist to the left of a soldier, and thus shackled, if they could afford it, were at liberty to hire a lodging for themselves without the walls, but within the prescribed limits, out without the walls of a prison, I guess they're talking about, but within the prescribed limits of the city or wherever they could go legally. So Paul is, and I think that's reasonable to me, he's under house arrest here, and that's how he can speak boldly. He invites people to his house and gives them the gospel. He speaks boldly as I ought to speak. He said, that's the way it ought to be, boldly. I'll be honest, I don't have that kind of boldness. I wish I did. He's a great example for us, Paul, is to speak when you don't feel like speaking. Because you're scared. Paul says he's an ambassador in chains. He's spreading the gospel in Rome, we know from Philippians, which is also one of his prison epistles while he was in prison in Rome. Philippians 1, 12-14. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. The Praetorian Guard is that special group of soldiers that guarded the emperor there in Rome. They were responsible for a lot of regime changes when one emperor was killed and another put in, in place. So they were an important group of soldiers, extremely important. And the cause of Christ is well known throughout these people and to everyone else, Paul says. Philippians 1, verse 13. Now we go to verse 14, Philippians 1, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So Paul had encouraged with his boldness and encouraged a lot of other people's boldness in Rome to preach the gospel in the midst of the, the devil's kingdom, the Roman Empire. Then I've studied Bible says that this Philippian letter was written in the same imprisonment from which Paul wrote Ephesians, which was the first imprisonment. So there's boldness everywhere. I speak boldly and everybody is other people are speaking boldly because I speak boldly. Even the Praetorian Guard knows about Jesus now. We go to verses 21 through 24, and we'll finish up Ephesians chapter 6, and finish up the book of Ephesians 2. Verse 21, But that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us, and that he may comfort your hearts. 
Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Now, Paul says, you, plural, you, may know about my circumstances, but he doesn't mention any names in his sign-off, in his closing. He mentions no names. So from that, no personal references, so from that, many think that Ephesians was a circular letter. As Adam Clark says, quote, if the epistle were really sent to the Ephesians, a people with whom the apostle was so intimately acquainted, it is strange that he mentions no person by name. So we'll assume it's a circular letter. Some people say that the letter was sent to the Ephesians, and then to the Colossians, and then to the Laodiceans, which are three cities right there on the western coast of Asia Minor, or the western section of Asia Minor, relatively close to each other, but I think 110, 120 miles of each other. But at any rate, he's sending this letter out, and he's taking, and Tychicus is doing it. He's the one that delivered the the Ephesian letter to the Ephesians, and to who, and he also went to Colossae to see Philemon, and he and people say he took Onesimus with him, the the freed the slave that had escaped from Philemon, and Paul had sent him back to Philemon. So Tychicus is carrying this letter now. Tychicus is an interesting guy. He's mentioned five times in the New Testament. Let me give you a quote from John Gill. This Tychicus was of Asia. Now Asia that means Western Anatolia, present-day Turkey, on the west area there. There was a province right there in the middle of the coast that was the Roman province of Asia. This Tychicus was of Asia who accompanied the apostle in his travels and went with him to Rome, from whence he sent him to several places to relate his case and to know the state of the churches. He went with him from Rome after, after the third journey, as we'll see here in a minute. So I'm going to give you a timeline for Tychicus. First, he went with Paul on the third journey. That's where he first appears. He was probably a delegate from the Ephesian church, from, of course, where he was from. The scripture says in Acts 24 that he was from Asia. Well, Ephesus is probably the... In fact, there's a, there's a Western... Te- there's a textual variant that says he was of Ephesus, a native of Ephesus. I got that from Wikipedia. So let's assume he's from Ephesus. So we read in Acts 24, this is Paul going, leaving Corinth at the end of the third journey, heading back to Rome to deliver the four province collection to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Acts 20, verse 4. He, Paul, was accompanied by Sopotus and Epirus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. Tychicus from the province of Asia. So, he was one of the delegation, Tychicus was, of that delegation sending that money back to Jerusalem. Now, they go to Jerusalem. Two years, Paul's held up in Caesarea under arrest, and then he's sent back to Rome. Tychicus went back with him from Rome back to, well, I say he went with him. Let's put it this way. He ends up back in Rome with Paul. I assume he went with him on the trip. I don't think it says that anywhere, but I'm assuming that. Anyway, he ends up back in Rome with Paul, and then we read that with Paul near the close of his first imprisonment at Rome, which is when the book of Ephesus was written, as well as Colossians, they were written at the same time, delivered by Tychicus at the same time, near the end of Paul's first imprisonment there in Rome in the early 60s. Colossians 4, 7. Tychicus, our beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me, which is very similar to what he said in Ephesus. He called him beloved brother, faithful minister, and Colossians. He said he was a beloved brother and a faithful minister. And he says in, in Ephesus, in uh, Ephesians 6:21, Tychicus will make everything known to you. In Colossians, he says Tychicus will make everything, will tell you all the news about me. So we'll assume it's the same. These two letters were delivered by Tychicus at the same time. As Daniel Wallace, the famous Greek scholar, says in an article I 
I found on Bible.org, he says, it is impossible to imagine that the two epistles were sent at a different time, at different times. Yeah, okay, so they were. Ephesians and Colossians were sent at the same time, and Tychicus delivered them. Now, Paul is released from his first imprisonment, and we see Paul with Tychicus on the way to Nicopolis. Nicopolis is a famous Roman town in Epirus. I say Roman, I guess I should say Greek, a Greek town. Epirus is on the western part of Greece and a little bit north, present-day Albania. Nicopolis was there. Titus 3.12, we see this. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in, Nop- in Nicopolis because I have decided to spend the winter there. Now, what that means is, is Paul says he's planning to send either Artemis or Tychicus to him. That means to, to Titus. So that means that Tychicus would have to be with Paul in order for Paul to send Tychicus to Titus. And then he says, Titus, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis because I've decided to spend the winter there. So Paul's in Nicopolis, Tychicus is with him, and he's sending Tychicus to Titus. All right, so that's kind of a one-off reference to Tychicus. After the first imprisonment, Paul is in Nicopolis in western Greece in Epirus. And then that's when he's between his imprisonments when he was free, and then he was imprisoned again. And near, near his second imprisonment, near his death, Paul sends Tychicus to Ephesus once again, not to bring the letter. That's in the that's in the first imprisonment. This is in the second imprisonment. Paul sends Tychicus to Ephesus again. And read read this when Paul writes the second to Timothy in Second Timothy four twelve. I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus. We don't know why. So with those cryptic references to Tychicus, we see that he was a very faithful, beloved brother, faithful servant, servant of the Lord, faithful minister. These are the type of people that don't get a lot of press, but they're absolutely necessary for the people with the big names in the body of Christ to get the job done. I call them helpers. There's no, nothing more important than helpers. You know, I've seen people do construction, and sometimes they just need one hand. Helper doesn't have a lot of skill. He just needs to hand something to the guy, the carpenter, or the person nailing who has the skills. But he, he just needs somebody to hand the dog on nails to him or hand the board to him or, or you know, to help out. Well, this Tychicus is somebody like that. Paul couldn't have done his work without Tychicus. Ladies and gentlemen, I think we'll wrap it up here because it's obvious what is said here. Verse 22, I've sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know about us, that he may comfort your hearts, comfort the Ephesians, because to let them know that Paul's standing firm in the gospel and he's doing okay. Then he stands, he signs off with a typical closing, peace be to the brethren, love with faith. These are characteristics of the gospel, peace. You're no longer an enemy of God, but you're at peace with him and love, and faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, love, faith, grace, peace. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love, love that doesn't rot. So we're finished with the book of Ephesians. I hope you stay tuned with me as we go to the next prison epistle, which is the book of Philippians. We'll start with that book in the next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.